with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the Phronesis podcast. And today, I have Deborah Helsing, and she is a lecturer on education And she teaches adult development, immunity to change, and co-teaches a course, Practicing Leadership Inside and Out, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She also provides individualized executive coaching to high-potential educational leaders as part of the Doctoral of Educational Leadership EDLD program. In addition to her faculty appointments at Harvard Graduate School of Education. She is co-director at Minds at Work, an organization assisting individuals, teams, and organizations to make personal and collective change. There's more. She's an author. She has been a part of the teams that wrote an everyone culture, right weight, right mind, and change leadership. And she's published in some of the best academic journals. One of my favorites, I'll put a link to this in the show notes, and I think Google Scholar will help us get there. Understanding Leadership from the Inside Out, an article that was in the Journal of Management Inquiry. She holds a BA in English from Grinnell, a master's from the University of Michigan, and a doctorate from Harvard. You just moved your way east, didn't you? (laughs) I did. I started east. I started in New Jersey, so I was coming back, you know, coming back to the northeast. Oh, that's great. Well, Deb, what blanks do we need to fill in? What else should listeners know about you that may not be in the formal bio? Oh, yeah. You know, it's so funny. That's one way to tell your story. And there's, you know, so many different ways to tell your story. I would say maybe the thing that has 
driven me and that I've been lucky enough to be able to do is kind of follow my own questions, follow my own sense of, oh, that helped me explore, you know, having that experience helped me explore some topic or, or get to a place where I felt like, oh, I can kind of see another horizon I want to explore. And so I never had some map of what I wanted my career to look like. I felt like I could kind of follow my interests and be lucky enough to connect with people I could learn from, grow with, and yeah, kind of continue on. And isn't that a great way to be? To yeah. just explore what you want to explore. I, I love that about academia as well. I'm taking a course with you right now, and I have the space and the freedom to write what I want to write, explore the questions that I want to explore. I, I absolutely feel so thankful that that's what I can spend my time on. And, and if I'm unhappy, no one's fault but mine. <laughs> I hope, first of all, that you're not unhappy. <laughs> I am very happy. I'm very happy. So tell me real quick before we move on. I love the name, probably one of my favorite names of any organization ever, Minds at Work, especially when people explore the organization and better understand what it is all of you do. And there'll be all kinds of links in the show notes. What's the origin story of that name? Oh, good. I'm not sure about the name itself. I'm sure it was a Bob Keegan, Lisa Leahy brainstorm that led to that particular name. But the idea of it, you know, is that Bob Keegan had been doing a lot of, you know, academic research, building out this theory of constructive developmental theory, how we grow and change in adulthood, and was beginning to make lots of connections to like, what does this mean for the real world? Initially, he was thinking about implications for counseling, but that began to grow and expand. And then if you believe their stories, Lisa challenged him to say, like, can't we say more about how you support that kind of development? Can't we develop something that has a little bit more of a structure to it, a kind of a curriculum that would assist people who are suffering in some way because they're stuck, because they haven't been able to grow? So that gave birth to the immunity to change model. And then how do we get that to people? How do we support people who want that help or organizations who want to do a better job of supporting that kind of change? And so creating an organization where that could happen was the original motivation for developing a company like Minds at Work. And you can probably see the connection there, that whole idea of putting people's minds to work, helping them work in better ways. Yes. You you mentioned immunity to change. I was saying before we started recording that I think it was 2006. I just had this really powerful experience with that activity. I was at Harvard doing Ron Heifetz's Art and Practice of Leadership Development. So kind of in the middle of this, I forget, was it seven or eight or nine days, something of that to that effect. In the middle of that experience, Bob came in and, and ran us through the immunity to change process. And I was also saying to you before we we started recording that probably Bob Keegan has seen me cry more than any other human <laughs> than my parents <laughs> because I'm in this activity and I, I I kind of got my results and I called him over and I said, is this what it's supposed to look like? And he looked at me and he said, yeah. And I just, you know, I, I was super ripe for this experience, for this insight, for this knowledge, this understanding. And it fundamentally, in moments, transformed. I immediately, you know, after this program was done, my wife and I were meeting in New York City. And we were, I think, on top of a building near 
Columbia's medical school. And we were having a glass of wine and I just showed her this map and I said, what do you think? And she said, yeah, yeah. And that process, because I was then trained in it about a year, a year later, maybe around 2007, that process has just been so fundamental to not only my work, but also just my own development and my own growth. And so as you think about that, because that's a large portion of what you do, how, yeah. how have you thought about that work in recent years? Because I mean, is that a common story you hear all the time? <laughs> <laughs> it is a common story, yeah. which is amazing and exciting and something I feel incredibly privileged to have, have heard and gotten to kind of witness that experience for people or assist them in having that experience. Because I think a, a couple of things. One is I think that because what the process does is help you uncover very deep, very powerful ways that we have been probably unknowingly looking to protect ourselves from loss or from danger. And that have also led to us resisting change, resisting growth, you know, because there's some part of this that feels like if we do change, if we do grow, we are going to experience this loss of some kind or, or some danger. The things that tend to come up for people, how they, you know, the dangers they may feel that they're in of like, you know, people will think I'm an idiot or I'll fail and disappoint my entire family or to feel like I'm not the kind of person who can do that. That's just Mm. not who I am. And you have a very limited idea of their own potential. And to see people identify something like that, to put it into words and then to begin to consider what if that's not true Yes. Both creates a very powerful sense of connection. It's so human. You know, there's almost nothing someone can come to that I feel like other people don't resonate with, that they don't see like, I I totally make sense. Like there's some part of me that immediately sees the sense in that. Yeah. As well as I think what's possible then to see people be able to move past that. And, you know, if you think about like, sometimes I look at, the careers people choose. And like, if I were, let's say a police officer, what are the experiences I'm having every single day? And what does that lead me to think about what people are like, you know, or if I'd chosen a very different kind of politics or, you know, whatever it is, like how everything you're experiencing day to day leads you to see the world in particular ways and other people and maybe yourself, but having been a coach and had that experience with so many people and see people, you know, come face to face with something that has had such a grip on them. Yes. And then be able to say, wow, I, it starts to loosen its grip. I start to see new possibilities. I start to consider like, I could be completely different. I could, I could grow in some way I would never have thought possible. That also changes me. That leads me to think, oh my goodness, like so, so much is possible. I, I raise the bar for myself. I think, oh, I should be setting more goals for myself because. I see so much power in what happens and what, what people can do. And it's, it's data to support beliefs that we're often, I think, too shy and too careful. And, and we don't ask for enough in terms of what our lives could be like. Yes. Mine was all my, my, my limiting assumptions and, and my competing commitments were, you know, avoidance of rejection. There was some themes around that. Yeah. And Boy, I got back to Cleveland, Ohio, and for listeners, 
we have to have you explore this content because it's so much fun. In some ways, some of this might make a little more sense after, but there's a challenge after you kind of identify maybe something that you could be could be working on. There's this notion of designing some safe, actionable experiments. How can we push back on some of these limiting assumptions that we have that truncate our ability to, to see those opportunities and take, take advantage of potential things? And so for me, one was I was very committed to not being rejected, not putting myself out there. And Deb, it was, <laughs> you know, I, I put myself out there and I would say, good job. Every time someone said no, or I got rejected, at least I was putting myself out there. Cause I kind of, so interesting. in a way I kind of got mad, not obviously mad and angry, but I, I, I thought, oh, these things on this paper that I'm looking at right now are holding me back from who I know I can be. Urgh. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of, pushed back on them. And, and to this day, even I'll put myself out there and I'll be rejected. And in my mind, it's good job. You're pushing, you're pushing on that. Now, of course they're safe, actionable experiments, <laughs> right? Yes, there are. Yeah. And that's going to be different for different people, Yeah, but no, I think your, your example is actually a really beautiful example of, you know, the kinds of, of things we can learn because it could be that at some point in your life, like earlier in your life, mm-hmm. being rejected would have been terrible. And oh, you wouldn't was. have been able to say, like, I'm proud of myself for trying. Or it could be that, like, if certain people had rejected in me, rejected me, that was so devastating that I felt like I can't possibly put myself at risk of that with other people. And so, you know, and a lot of this is unconscious. And we yes. just kind of, you know, it's just we build a little wall where it says, if I'm getting close to... Uh, the possibility where I could be rejected. Whoa, that's way too dangerous. Yep. So I, yep. I got to back up and stay safe. Yep. Stay and, safe. And, yeah. and in the meantime, hold myself back from what we talked about when we started exploring all these cool, wonderful things that are out there, but I wanted to stay safe. Right. Yeah. And so you might surprise yourself by finding lots of people don't reject me. And maybe there are ways I can be clearer about is that risk just a lot smaller than I thought it was. Yep. But also like a whole other assumption is, and if I do get rejected, that's the end of the world. Yeah. Like I can't survive that experience. And then finding out, well, actually I can, <laughs> and not just survive it. I can actually feel good about it. Like yeah. I'm really glad I tried that. I, I, I take strength from being able to try something risky and to not feel like my self-worth depends on whether that other person gives me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but whether I'm giving myself a thumbs up there for moving out of my comfort zone, for pursuing something I care about, for making progress in a way, you know, that matters to me. And so it's like that ability to kind of update your ways you've been protecting yourself to say, maybe that was true before, but that's not true anymore. And, and safely testing it out allows me to learn that. Yes. Well, and Deb, maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, I don't know, but this is an interesting kind of nook and cranny of this conversation, but then it set me up to be a better parent. Okay. So I put myself out there for a couple of things this fall. I did not get them, but my children knew that I had put myself out there. They knew that I hadn't gotten it. They knew that I had put myself out, that I had really gone for something and didn't have it happen, but that's part of the process. And then I could then share that with them. 
So because in their own ways as children, they're putting themselves out there, whether it's a chess tournament or a speech and debate tournament or something new that they've never tried before. And maybe when it doesn't go well, if I can be modeling that for them, then how beautiful is that? So this little piece of paper I filled out in 2006, it's living <laughs> in my mind and in my family. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. And and that's also, you know, something we see that, in fact, I think when um, at the beginning of the book, Immunity to Change, Bob and Lisa talk about it as a little bit like a Trojan horse, you know, so maybe your improvement goal was very focused on one thing, but if you get to something powerful, here are the fears and worries and hidden commitments and big assumptions holding me back from making that change. If, if the, those things you uncover are powerful enough, it does start to impact all other areas of your life. So the horse gets through the gates based on <laughs> one commitment and then look out, you know, all kinds of new things start to emerge and, and there's a lot more power than just that one, that one map. Exactly. Exactly. Any core insights on doing this work, even in recent years, maybe the last four or five years, it seems as though even some of the language is changing slightly in how mm. we communicate. And, and again, I might be working off of a 2007 training, which means I, I may need to come back and get more, more training. But yeah, what have you been learning in recent years about the process? So I would say particularly related to deliberately developmental organizations or DDOs, which is easier to say. I think initially, Bob and Lisa, and then as I began to work with them, you know, I'll include myself in that. I think we were very curious to see who does this help and under what conditions? And can you have a bunch of people together in a conference room doing this and having a powerful experience? Is there enough safety and trust and curiosity to explore something and, and get to a powerful result? And, and the more we started to see all the different contexts in which this could work and how much readiness do people need to have or how much can you help them get ready? All the, Moving it to a place where we began to see how it could be useful inside organizations with people who work together on a daily basis, where not only are people sharing, here's what you could get better at, or here's what I'm working on, but also much deeper internal issues around if I do speak up and if I share an idea in a meeting and it gets shot down, mm. I will feel like I don't belong here. And that's what holds me back. And if people are having those kinds of conversations with each other, what does that mean for the organization? What does that mean for the ability of a culture to support people to explore those, grow past those kinds of assumptions? And I think that enough of the work on immunity to change had to happen to see, yes, that is possible that uh, is, this can be a powerful engine in organizational settings where people can develop the kinds of relationships, ways of working together that mean this kind of work is possible, exciting, where it leads to great shifts in individuals and in the organization itself. So that's one thing I would say. I would say the yeah. other thing that I have noticed in terms of my own understanding of immunity to change, the more I coach people, is how to bring in different theories or lenses, ways of understanding the kinds of factors that could be involved for people. So for example, let's say I continue with that possibility of if I, if I raise an idea in a meeting and it gets shot down, then I'll feel like I don't belong here. You know, on one hand, you can just take that as an assumption, context-free. 
But you can also start thinking about other lenses that might help you complicate that assumption. Like, well, what if I am a woman of color and everyone else on the team is white and mostly male? How does that impact my assumption in a more particular way? So I might bring something like a a theory of racial identity and and power and politics or something like, like, does that help me work with someone or sort of see is that part of what's going on here? Or like I might, and I would say in particular, when we work with people around issues like food, you know, trying to change habits, like not relying so much on social media, you know, like little habits like that, which we, you know, in right weight, right mind is when we begin to explore those. I, I find myself often drawing on kind of a, a Buddhist psychology Hmm. Um, the idea being that we often think that we will prevent our own suffering by attachment to something. You know, if I do this, if I believe this, if I repeat this behavior, that'll prevent my suffering. But from a Buddhist perspective, that kind of clinging is actually the thing that causes suffering. And so with those little kinds of habits, well, if I eat this chocolate cake, I'm going to feel better. Right. But seeing, oh, that's actually not going to leave feel me to better feel for better. five minutes. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like that's a very simple example. But we do that yeah. all the time when I'm, I'm oh, just yeah. going to check my email one more time. Oh, what's on LinkedIn? Oh, what's on Facebook? You know, and it's it's probably not a conscious decision that I'm thinking this will make me feel better. But I'm just indulging in the part of me that doesn't want to be bored, that wants to feel less lonely and click a little burst of whatever that is, oxytocin in my head, you know, yeah. and all the ways that that I think aligns really well with faulty assumption that I'm preventing suffering and that the more I do that, the more I cling to that habit, the better off I'll be as opposed to seeing how that is actually creating suffering. Like all this to say, the more I can kind of bring in different theories to see how does this all connect here? Yeah. Uh, what are the ways that those can help me uncover more that could be going on for someone? That's been really fun for me and helped me, I think, better meet people where they are, help them put into language what's really at the heart of the matter for them, have different ways of talking with them about it and and experimenting with how could we find out if that's limiting you when it shouldn't. Well, and that's so fascinating. I never would have even thought about that, this line of conversation. So you're seeing connections in other theories, other ways of thinking, other domains that if you have access to, you feel like you can be a better coach in helping that individual make sense of what they're experiencing. Is that accurate? Yeah. And just being able to see how many of these different theories give us a window into the ways that we are protecting ourselves and then help us name things, help us see if there are safe ways to explore those and find out they don't need to limit us in the way that they have or or when they don't need to limit us. Well, you had mentioned briefly deliberately developmental organizations. You had met with me and one of my co-authors recently, and I think our paper is going to be called Deliberately Developmental Degrees. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. I haven't run that by <laughs> like him it. yet, but who knows? We'll see if it lasts. But anyways, I I finished that book recently. I was a little bit behind. Having a podcast, everyone always says, hey, this is a great book. This is a great book. And so I've been reading all kinds of incredible things. I had not gotten to this one yet, but I love it. And for me, we're we're going up some levels here. Is, Is the organization 
that that holding environment, that container and the culture for growth? Is it helping to promote the growth? Is it helping to foster and facilitate growth? Going back to that thinking, and for those of you who may be not familiar with their work, an increasing amount of research is suggesting that generally speaking, people who are working at higher levels of mental complexity will be better prepared to serve in some of these very difficult roles that they find themselves in when they're leading. And that goes back to Keegan's In Over Our Heads. And Keith Eigel and Carl Kuhnert and some folks from CCL, Torbert, they've done some research to really begin to building this base of scholarship to suggest that empirically. Deliberately developmental organizations, now it seems like we're moving into how do we create that culture to facilitate that growth so that our employees, our team members can tackle these demands better? Did I explain it? halfway decently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing I would say is, you know, development is, is one important factor in someone's effectiveness as a leader. Yeah. So there are things that it, it can't help us with, or it can't ensure, yep. you know, it won't necessarily mean you're going to be a nicer person mm. or happier, but it might, you may have no more expertise. So it might be more useful to think about it in terms of like a necessary factor, but not the whole picture. Great. Because, and I think in over our heads really is the first place where Bob lays this out, the whole idea of mental complexity, which is what we're really talking about when we talk about developing, is really important if you are facing complex demands. Yeah. So if what you're facing does not require you to grow and change, then there's absolutely no need to. But for many leadership positions, there are demands. We are expected to be able to create a kind of vision of what we're trying to bring about. And we're expected to be able to prioritize what are the the highest priority items? How am I going to decide among those? How am I going to set boundaries to make sure I'm protecting those, protecting my time? How am I going to be able to handle disagreements? Can I offer a dissenting view? And can we engage in disagreement productively? And all of those kinds of things are pretty hard for many adults to do and require a lot of practice and require a lot of growth in being able to understand the world from what, in Bob Keegan's language, within his theory, he would call it a self-authoring capacity, a self-authoring stage of development. Yes. Most adults do not enter into adulthood at that stage. So the more we can develop the complexity to meet the challenges of our roles, the more effective we can be in them. In addition to all the other factors that will be important. Yes. What's also, I think, useful to understand and to consider then is if you look beyond the individual to the context, the world is not getting simpler. Yes. You know, we are faced with more and more complex challenges to navigate the need for people to develop faster or to go further in their development to allow us to successfully address some of the real challenges we face, you know, at the, the largest scale that are not easy to solve, but also the ones we're facing in our day-to-day lives and in our organizations that also then increases the need for people to develop. And then finally, 
I think one thing that's really interesting to me, particularly now as we're, you know, seeing the, the great resignation and the ways people, people are making different decisions yes. about their work during the pandemic, some of which is probably based on, you know, can I work remotely or do I have to commute, you know, things like our salary, but some of which is really motivated by what do I want in a job? And does my job allow me to feel like I can be fully myself and be realizing more and more of my potential? You know, do I feel like, like I can flourish here? Yes. And so having a job maybe is increasingly less about some of the factors of what's my job title and how many hours a week am I working and, you know, what are the stated benefits that I get, but also more the sense of like, what are the internal or interior rewards I'm getting for doing this work? Do I feel like my contribution matters and that I'm continually experiencing my own growth and working with other people where we can create a community to welcome that kind of growth to challenge each other gently, but also support each other, you know, all those kinds of things. I think we're starting to see how much those factor into people's decisions about where they work and what they do and what they're looking for. Yes. Well, in these DDOs, it seems like there's an intentional effort to build a culture where that growth can occur. Would you talk a little bit about that? What are some of the ingredients in the DDOs that as you were doing the research stood out for you? Some of the foundational elements of these DDOs and maybe even some misconceptions, I think that that you've heard since the book has come out or as it's been interpreted by various sources. (laughs) Okay, so I would say, you know, the way that we write about DDOs in the book is by profiling three mature DDOs, three organizations that have been at this long enough to get to a place where you can really see dramatic differences in the cultures of these organizations from most organizations. When we, when we looked across these three organizations, we saw three main things in common. One being they do a lot of work to create a sense of home, yeah. enough psychological safety, a sense that you are welcome. Your whole self is welcome. You don't need to kind of check your personal life at the door, but the deepest concerns you have about yourself as a person and what matters to you most, all of those are welcome in the organization. And how do we create a place that welcomes that? While also, and probably because we have that safety, creating a place where people experience what we call edge or challenge. So that you also are getting feedback about, well, here's what I think is limiting you. Here's where you could become more effective. Here's where I see a pattern that's holding you back. And so people have a lot of, I'm going to say opportunities (laughs) to (laughs) kind of run into the ways that they have blind spots, the ways that they're screwing up, the ways that they're behaving in a way that's undermining the culture. And I'll come back to that because I think that often gets people's attention first. (laughs) Uh, But the third feature then is what we call groove. And that basically means you have many, many opportunities to be practicing creating that culture of safety, working on your growing edges. And so it's not like a every six months we have a retreat or, you know, there's an offsite, there's a particular program just for the high potentials. You know, it's how do we, how do we build this so that people are daily and weekly, regularly 
experiencing this while they're doing their jobs, not as something separate, and that it is shaping the way they work together. Yes. A word that you all use in the book that I love, that pan-developmental. And as I recall, pan-developmental was regardless of where you are and what stage you are at, you have an opportunity to learn, develop, grow. Yeah. And that's like, that's a fundamental key part of how these organizations define themselves. That's as much a part of their mission to be those kinds of places as it is to make a profit, to succeed, you know, in terms of excellent work products. So, and those things go hand in hand. How does the creation of excellent work products depend on everyone growing and developing? And how does that also provide the meat and the tools and the fuel for that growth and development? And so, so they work very much like in an intertwined kind of way. I don't know if it's a misconception, but I would say what people tend to, what grabs their attention tends to be the ways, the edge part of things, the ways people get feedback on their blind spots or encounter, you know, run into a brick wall where they, they experience their limitations. You know, people very understandably try to put themselves in that situation and think like, oh my God, that's so painful. And I would hate that. And And I'd be offended if someone said something like that to me at work. And I would never want to work in a place like that because people do get painful feedback. They get feedback like you're really just looking out for yourself and that's selfish. You're not really trying to help other people grow and develop or you're unreliable. And I don't know if you're going to be there when I need support and you need to know that. So, you know, people focus on those kinds of things and think, oh my God, it'd be terrible to work there. I would say that tends to remove that piece of things from the other context of incredible community, incredible amounts of support so that those painful experiences are something I can actually explore productively. And I feel like maybe that is one of the biggest personal takeaways I've had because in studying how it happens in these cultures, I think it has really changed the way I respond if I get painful feedback. Or if I'm aware, God, I didn't handle that the way I wanted it to. And that I'm much more likely now, instead of trying to not think about that or, or just <laughs> put maybe, that on the back burner. <laughs> yeah. I'll just soothe myself here. It wasn't that bad, you know, instead to say, Ooh, I, I can see that it's painful to turn to that and painful to really say, tell me more about that. You gave me some feedback that I think I can learn from, but I need to understand it better to have a sense that what's after that pain, what's after that initial sting of what I like to think of myself as and how this person experienced me, seeing how people get to the other side of that and how that changes them and how they rise to new levels of excellence in their performance or compassion in the way they work with other people. It just, that horizon seemed much clearer to me. I feel like there's almost some excitement I have in painful feedback or failure or big mistakes. I mean, hopefully nothing, you know, it's not like I'm going around like, <laughs> like intentionally putting myself in these situations, no. but, but there is something about, huh, here's a little, there's an opportunity here that I'm much more aware of than I think I used to be. Or at times it might be how someone's experiencing you, which, oh, okay. That's important for me to know that I can be experienced yeah. this way. And I can either, if, if it's not how I'm trying to show up, 
I can at least be aware that that's how I can. And I can either explain the behavior better or I can communicate in a different way because I imagine it's not for everyone. How would you respond to that question? That, that being in a DDO, you probably have to be somewhat open to that experience because yeah. for someone who isn't seeking that out or so, isn't interested in that, what have you heard on that front? Yeah, it's so interesting. And I think each of the organizations handles that issue differently. Next Jump, which is one of the organizations we profiled, they, they had a policy, I think they still do, that we don't fire people because you don't fire family. Yeah. You know, that's, that's part of the source of everybody's growth is the challenges you face in, in the family dynamic, you know? And so, um, and that doesn't mean that the person just gets to continue doing whatever they're doing that's difficult or that doesn't seem to, if they seem to be not welcome, not welcoming feedback, not looking to learn from it. They have lots of practices that the person is expected to continue to go through. Now I'm guessing that for many people, they're like, okay, enough of this. This, I, I, you know, I'm not going to keep doing this (laughs) because I'm not getting anything out of it. And I kind of refuse to. And so it's not a good fit. Yeah. So that's one, that's one possibility at, at, for example, Bridgewater, they said it often takes about 18 months for people to kind of what what they call turn a corner Mm. to see that initially what seems like you all are crazy and this is so hard and oh my gosh, I can't believe that I keep getting confronted by these kinds of issues coming up about how I'm holding myself back, holding other people back, getting in the way, you know, and often, so often it's about in 18 months that people either see, wait a minute, this is actually all incredibly helpful if I can make good use of it. Yes. And I can, I can like just in the same way that you have discovered, I can handle rejection and grow yeah. from it. And and still trusted myself like that turning of the corner happens for some people. And for some people, they don't get there and they start to feel like, I just can't keep putting myself through this. And that could be for all kinds of reasons, you know, it could be like, I don't, all the features of the rest of my life, I don't have enough support or like, I'm not, my life isn't healthy enough, you know, or there's just too much drain. And, and some people it's probably, just too odd. It's too different from what they're used to. And they struggle to really understand this very different paradigm of what work could be like. And who knows how many factors, but they tend to experience it and and address it differently in different organizations. But even some of the the results that you suggest, and again, these are initial results, unless there's something that's come out in the last five years that I've missed. But there were some significant differences in some, at least in one organization you discuss, look, this, this group of executives went through this experience. This group of executives did not. And there was a large difference in the productivity of those executives who'd been through some of the workshops, training, learning that you all provided. I think anytime you have a fairly complex I'm going to say intervention. I'm not sure that's the right word, but any kind of experience people are going through that has a lot of parts to it, a lot of different experiences, crosses over time. You know, it's hard to say exactly what causes what, you know, what. And, you know, I think over and over again, we've seen that having experiences where people do surface the ways that they've kind of limited themselves, start to explore new possibilities that leads to incredible 
possibilities of what they can do. And sometimes it does, it does lead to surprising results where someone will say, I realize I actually need to change careers because now I'm clear about what matters most to me or, you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, you can't predict or you can't say this will be the impact, this will be the result. So, you know, I think interestingly, these organizations, some of them build that in, like for the third organization, Decurion, they often hired high school students to work in their movie theaters, knowing these are not going to be lifelong employees. They'll go off to college or they'll, maybe they're college students home for the summer. And so part of what we're doing is helping grow them and prepare them for the whole rest of their lives. And so thinking of it that way. But having to your point that home, the psychological safety, the the space, the holding environment, Winnicott might call it. Yes. <laughs> to go back to the de- back in the day, and then having that the the groove, which as I understand the the resources, the support, all those mechanisms, whether that's peer mentoring, whether that's opportunities for coaching, just all of those types of experiences, and then that edge, right? We've got the challenge and support hopefully beautifully balanced so that we are keeping people at their edge. They're developing, they're growing. And again, that's pan developmental. It might not just be how their function is, but that's part of it that maybe their, their scope of their job is growing. They're, they're, they're kept at their edge of that way, but then they're also processing and making sense and, and developing that mental complexity side as well. I think it's awesome. I think it's wonderful. And, and to think about it at a cultural level is it's so much fun. It's just really cool. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, for me, it was so exciting to kind of see what's happening in these organizations and how people experience that culture differently. And they, yep. they're, they're very open to experiments. They're just, let's try this. Let's try this. You know, and I think a lot of people outside those organizations think it sounds crazy. Like you can't do that. <laughs> People aren't going to do that. Well, let's see. Let's see what happens, you know, and and I don't mean that in a kind of irresponsible cavalier kind of way. Sure, sure. I mean it in a like, how do we know that yeah. people aren't going to grow and learn and can't handle this in a way that will really spark something exciting? And, you know, what we've tried so far leads us to think this might be the way to do it. Yeah, I love I love seeing how they try things out, how they learn from it, how people interact in those kinds of environments. Well, Deb, I'm going to place I'm going to place a number of links in, into the show notes so that people can access the book and access other resources from Minds at Work. And you know, as we wind down our time today, what have you been reading or streaming or listening to? And it could have something to do with what we've discussed or have nothing to do with what we've just discussed. But what's caught your eye in recent weeks or recent months? Ooh. That's a great question. And like a few different possibilities come to mind. (laughs) So I'll say one thing I'm doing, and this will be a nice plug for them, I hope. There's a program called Positive Intelligence. It's a process that has some similarities to immunity to change and that you identify what they call your saboteurs. Okay. And then through factor analysis, they've kind of narrowed it down to like, of all the possible things that could be holding you back, we've, we've got these like nine categories. So it's interesting. And But the thing about the program that's most interesting to me is the idea that after you have an insight, let's say, for example, in Immunity to Change, I uncover a, a really powerful big assumption and start to see like, this is crazy. This is not true. This has been unnecessarily holding me back. You do need to keep kind of practicing, keep testing that out, keep proving to yourself that there's not any data to support this, that this is inaccurate. 
one thing that interests me about this program are the ways that they talk about just building your muscles to kind of train yourself to kind of let go of some of those saboteurs and get, be in a place where you're more fully present, where you're able to kind of calm the part of your brain that's on high alert and instead <laughs> function, you know, with like a more clarity where you're drawing on more of your more complex capacities. And so I've been sort of thinking about that in connection with the ways, you know, that as people have new insights, they continue to test their big assumptions, Yep. maybe not to lead to a whole new powerful insight, but to, to solidify, to build those neural networks so that those pathways get stronger than the old pathways. You know, I guess it's like the whole, like more of a neuroscience perspective and bringing that into the ways that, you know, it helps me be a better immunity to change coach and help people continue to feel like the changes they're making are going to last and they're not going to be in danger of kind of falling back into old patterns. Well, but it's another, I mean, you had mentioned Buddhist psychology. It's another lens through which you can, oh, okay, this could connect here this way, which might, I I view it as another tool potentially to pull from to help people make meaning of their experiences and help them support them, right? And neuroscience is fascinating because I feel like Every time you pick up a journal or a book, there's some whole new way of, you know, we, we, now we see this about the brain and now we understand this about the incredible plasticity, you know, and so I feel like it's it's a great lens to be bringing into the work too. Deb, I have, I have great respect. The work is rooted in just such incredible thinking. And then we're taking that incredible thinking and, and moving it out into the world and seeing how this interacts with the world on the individual level and the team level and an organizational level and just much respect. I have, I have so much respect. And obviously, you know, that it has meant a lot to me personally and allegedly my family. (laughs) (laughs) Little do they know. (laughs) I'm just, I'm so thankful for all that you and the team do. Well, thank you. I, I love doing the work. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like it's this incredible gift to get to spend my days and my life doing this work. And I've had a lot of fun talking about it. So I appreciate all your good questions and your energy and enthusiasm, which I think uh, allows me to have a lot of fun while we're talking. Well, be well, stay warm. It's cold in Boston, I imagine right now. Yes, it is. It's very cold in Cleveland, Ohio. But uh, I I look forward to seeing you in class next Wednesday, 6 a.m. Me too. Me too. Until then. (laughs) Okay. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye, Scott. As you could tell from the conversation, I just have so much respect for the work that Deb does and her colleagues at Minds at Work, Robert Keegan, Lisa Leahy, and others. And, you know, deliberately developmental. Are we creating environments that are deliberately developmental, whether that's in organizational life whether that's in a degree program, wherever we are, if it's appropriate, and if it's a part of what we're trying to accomplish, is that a priority for us? Check out the show notes, all kinds of just wonderful resources for you to tap into, learn more about. And if you would, please explore those resources, because Deb and her colleagues are doing some incredible work. Now, a couple other things. First, Uh, Plan to attend the ILA conference next October in Washington, D.C. And you can find out more information by following some of the links in the show notes. 
But that is just a wonderful opportunity to connect with others who are passionate about this topic. So put that on your radar and plan now to attend the ILA conference in Washington, D.C. next fall. That's it for today, you all. Be well, take care. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you would, share with others what we're up to here at Phrenesis. If you would, go to iTunes and leave some kind of recommendation of what you think about the podcast. Give us a rating. I can't thank you enough for doing so. Take care, all. Be well. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.